if you have your Bible, uh, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, While you're doing that, let me uh, tell you about one of my favorite films. The the film world is all into crossover movies, isn't it, at the minute? So you put this character with this character, uh, and they get into a film plot together and they conquer the world. That's generally how these things go. And one of my favorite crossover films is Lego Batman, all right? Now, what's not to like about Lego and Batman, all right? I don't know if anybody's seen it, so if you haven't, this is a, it's a great movie. You should go home this afternoon and watch it. Uh, Lego Batman, it's brilliant. And there's a scene in the particular film, uh, where in this film, where all of the supervillains, uh, so the Joker and... Um, the Riddler and Bane, all of these Lego characters from Batman, all turn themselves into the authorities, to the police, as part of a kind of a twisted mind games against Batman, okay? And there's this, there's this scene, you can, you can find it on YouTube, and they turn themselves in, and then Batman suddenly realizes that there's no more crime in the city of Gotham, there's no more criminals to catch, and so he finds himself in the middle of the, all of the police arresting these criminals and, the, and a, a newspaper reporter thrusts a microphone and a camera in front of his face and says, Batman, what are you going to do now? And he says, well, I, I don't know. And he says, well, at least you'll have more time to spend with your friends and your family. And at that point, that triggers this kind of black and white montage of Batman realizing how isolated and alone he is. And it's all accompanied by a song that goes, one is the loneliest number that you'll ever meet. I won't sing it any more than that because I don't know the rest of the words. Um, but for all that Batman has going for him, you know, there's another song in the film and he goes, I'm Batman, I'm awesome, I got a nine pack, I'm awesome, I'm Batman. For all of that, that he has going for him, it, you know, this celebrated caped crusader this, uh, with the billionaire playboy alter ego Bruce Wayne. It, it's, it's a poignant moment in the film. <laughs> if you like, Lego Batman, poignant moment. It's a poignant moment as he realizes he's got no friends, he's got no family because he was orphaned, he's now got no villains to fight, and he is alone in the world. And it's a scene where his isolation and, and loneliness and sadness is deeply felt by him. Now, it's possible that many, that some people this morning walked in feeling a little like Batman. Not the, I'm Batman, I'm awesome, I've got a nine pack, uh, but feeling like one is the loneliest number that you'll ever meet. Because we've done two sermons on marriage, husbands and wives, and you find yourself this morning single and isolated perhaps. And perhaps you feel a sense of alone. Maybe it isn't the sermons that have done that. Maybe you just live with a general sense, a vague, constant sense that you are a single person living in a married person's world. Uh, And it it is true for uh, many churches, I think even for our church, that singles can feel out of place in a church that puts uh, appropriate emphasis on marriage and parenting from the Bible. And we find ourselves in Churches where things generally revolve around families, Christmases and Easter services are family events, the outreach is geared towards children, there's classes for the marrieds, all very good things, but perhaps you find yourself this morning a a spare in a pair's church, a spare in a pair's 
church. It's not intentional on any part or malicious by the married people, but they're just getting on with life. And you might find that you feel there's no place for you in the church. You don't really have a voice that gets heard, that no one is helping you with the unique challenges of being single in a married person's world. Especially it's more challenging if you're that little bit older as well. So my hope this morning is to begin to address a biblical vision and view of singleness. Now, I can't, can't say everything that needs to be said in one sermon. Uh, we will barely scratch the surface in the 40 or so minutes that we've got, uh, but that's my intention this morning. Uh, there's a couple of books as well that have been particularly helpful to me this week as I've prepared, and we've got some on the back uh, that we've made available for you to be able to purchase. And these are a good read for everybody, not just uh, singles. So let me just point you to this one. This is called Not Yet Married by a guy called Marshall Seagal, who wrote it when he was single. He's now married. Uh, and it's split into two parts. The first half, which I have read, is because uh, it is addressing a biblical vision of singleness. The second half of the book, which I haven't read, uh, but Matt has read it all, is, uh, is about dating and how to do that uh, in a, uh, as a Christian in the world. And it's, I, I commend it highly to you. It's very good. Uh, this one, Seven Myths About Singleness by Sam Albury, is... Um, is just out, okay? So when the 10 of those were here a few weeks ago, I tried to ask John, can you bring a bunch of these? And he said, they're not even released yet. Uh, and I got my copy last week. And then when I said to him, can you send me a bunch this week so we can sell them? He said, we only got six copies in the entire country left. And they're on that table there. So either buy it and read it or buy it and sell it on Amazon. All right, and make a bit of money. But they are the last six copies that you will find anywhere, as far as I'm aware. Uh, you can't get it on Amazon at the moment because they're all sold out and it's going for a reprint and that won't be reprinted for a few months. So they are the last six copies. It is excellent. Excellent. Really, really good. So that's my recommendations. Anyway. Sorry. All right, it's so great, I just threw it on the floor. Uh, my prayer as I prepared this week is that if you're single, this sermon would encourage your heart uh, and increase your sense of belonging to our church. And if you are married, this would shape the way that we serve the singles in our church. Uh, and it should be a message of considerable interest to all of us because believe it or not, we all began life single. And unless you die at exactly the same moment as your spouse, you will end single. Okay, We all start single in life, we will all end single in life, and in between there's lots of singleness. We raise children who will be single for some time. We have single friends who, with whom we relate. We might be involved in relationships that don't pan out, or are broken, uh, engagements that don't work out, divorce that sadly takes place, or we experience bereavement and the losing of a spouse, either early in life or later into old age. So singleness is something that everyone faces at some point whatever our current stage of life, married or single. We all face it, so it should be important to all of us because we all need to think about singleness carefully from the Bible because we'll be there now or again in the future. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 to 9 and then 32 to 35, which really is the uh, primary place that God addresses singleness through the Apostle Paul. So let's read together. And then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. This is verse 6. Paul writes, Now as a concession, not a command, 
I say this. So that just means uh, Jesus hasn't told me the exact words to write. Okay, He's taking biblical wisdom and principles that he knows and he's applying them under the inspiration of the Spirit. So now that it's God's word. But here's what he writes. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And down to verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. And that doesn't mean worldly in a sinful way, but just the things of this earth. How to please a wife and his family. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak words of comfort and help and strength and faith to all of our hearts this morning as we deal with the biblical vision of singleness. Help us to realise that we belong to one another because we belong to you. And that therefore, what happens to one part affects us all. We all have a stake in the health of one another, whether we're married or single, and we pray that your word would address us and help us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let me just give you a bit of background so that we can get to grips with what Paul is saying here. He has preached the gospel in uh, the city of Corinth. It was a wild pagan party town. He was there for about 18 months before moving on. Uh, and a church was established in this wild city. Uh, and then he left. And but by the grace of God, the gospel continued to be preached and um, People began, continued to get saved. And so what it meant was that new believers were constantly being added into the church, but they were, be, they were coming with some wacky theological views and, shall we say, um, some creative living arrangements okay, and relationship organization uh, amongst themselves. And so 1 Corinthians is, 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to a letter that this church sent to him with questions that they wanted answers on. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 7, where he says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's responding to questions. And then all the way through the book, you see in verse 25, Now concerning the matter about you which you wrote, concerning the betrothed. And then in uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, Now concerning food offered to idols. And then in chapter 12, Now concerning spiritual gifts. So this section of the book, he's answering the questions that these Corinthians had. And in chapter 7 in particular, he's answering the question, uh, uh, trying to settle a dispute that the Corinthians had about sexuality and marriage and singleness. And Paul is writing as a single man into this situation. And what was happening is, in Corinth, it was wild and it was sexually liberal and it was licentious. 
But some of the Corinthian Christians had begun to swing the pendulum too far. And they were saying, our city is out of control, particularly in the area of sex. So in order to try and control things, because it's got wild, no sex for anybody. Okay, and that's verse one. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they were saying. They were saying, if you're really spiritual... You don't get married, you stay single, and you don't have sex. If you're married, it's really spiritual to stay married, but don't you have sex. And if you are really, really spiritual, and you're already married, and you have to have sex for procreation, then make sure you don't enjoy it. That's, the, that's basically what they were arguing. And so in, in verses 2 to 5, he goes, no. That's not how God has designed it. That's not how the world is supposed to work. That's not God's norm. No, God's norm is that husbands and wives are to have regular, frequent, full sex together. Good news for us husbands and wives, isn't it? Now, I know all the singles are going, this is the worst sermon on singleness that he's ever preached because all he's done so far is tell married couples to have a lot of sex. What's he doing? Now, we need to understand just the train of thought. To get Paul's meaning. And then in verses 6 to 9, he turns to the singles and he addresses them. Okay? And it's interesting because the way he addresses them as unmarrieds and widows tells us something about the Bible's view of singleness. That singles are not all the same. Some are singles by choice. And that's incorporated in the word unmarried. And some are single by circumstance. Might be widows. But however we're single, whatever situation we find our singleness to be in, God wants us to be absolutely clear that singles are in no way, shape or form left out of God's design or plan or purpose for his people and family. So the title of this message is, Is God Interested in Singles? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And Paul's going to tell us three things about singleness that will help us get a biblical vision of it. And then I've added a fourth point, which is application for us as a church family in light of what Paul says. So here's the three things that Paul is gonna say to us. He's gonna say singleness is good, singleness is a gift, and singleness is for God. And then I'm gonna add a fourth point which says, and singleness is hard. So let's begin with Paul's first point here, that singleness is good. Now, we live in a world of Disney and fairy tales and romantic comedies, which always seem to end in a happily ever after. You find your soulmate, you live happily ever after. And anything apart from a happily ever after at the end of an aisle is grim and subhuman. That's the kind of world that we live in. Much of our society is structured around couples. And it's assumed that adults will have a partner of some kind. And if you don't have a partner, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband or wife for a prolonged period of time, then there must be something rather odd about you. That's the way the world works in our world. And even in the church, unfortunately, whilst we might not say that singleness is bad, most of us probably have this idea that singleness just isn't very good. And singleness, if you think about it, in all of the conversations that we might have uh, week after week and year after year, it's probably mostly in our minds that singleness has been spoken of in negative terms. That it's the absence of something superior, i.e. marriage. That it's the unfortunate state of not being married. 
that it's plan B for the Christian life, that it's somehow second best or second class. That it's a problem to be solved, a danger to be escaped, a disease to be cured, a phase to be passed through as soon as possible. Or, perhaps worst of all, it's just a relationship purgatory that you have to endure while you wait for your real life to begin when you meet your soulmate. That's kind of how we talk about it in the church. And churches just like ours, right? So I'm not trying to shift the blame, all those churches out there. No, this church and me... As a Christian, I think we can have a wrong view of marriage that so elevates it to the point of idolising it that we actually treat single people as subhuman. And I think we can be guilty of that. We've got to hold our hands up and say, we don't, we don't do it intentionally, we don't do it uh, maliciously, but we just think, well, that's a bit weird, and a bit wrong. What's wrong with you? Why can't you find someone to marry? And we say, you know, a bit like the Corinthians. Well, if you're a really good Christian, you'll get married. If you're a really, really good Christian, you'll be married and you'll have a bunch of kids. But here Paul says in verse 7, I wish all were as I am. And then in verse 8, it is good, it is good to remain single. The Bible describes singleness as good, even later on as a blessing from God. Now, the temptation to hear when we hear verses 7 and 8, I wish that all were as I am, i.e. single, and it's good to remain single, is that we can mistakenly hear what Paul isn't saying. He's not saying, well, then marriage is bad, or the desire to be married is bad. He's not denigrating marriage in any way. He's just saying singleness is good, just like marriage is good. Both are good. Marriage is ordained by God and it's something he's given for the good of all mankind and it contains these wonderful, profound realities of companionship and intimacy and sanctification. And Ephesians 5 tells us that it points to a greater reality and a, and a picture of how Jesus loves his church. So Paul holds it in high esteem and that's because God holds it in high esteem. And so we're not wrong or sinful to hold it in high esteem and, and, and have a high view of marriage because the Bible does. But at the same time, marriage is not ultimate. And a thing to be worshipped because only God is ultimate. And he alone is worthy to be worshipped. Think about the interaction that Jesus has in Matthew 22 with the Sadducees. Do you remember that story? The Sadducees come to him and they're trying to trap him and they say, listen, Jesus, what would happen in this situation? And they say, there's a man and a wife and the man dies and the law says, you know, that the wife has got to be given to the brother so that he can make children with her to keep his brother's legacy going. But then he dies and, she, and then she marries the next brother and he dies and he, she marries the next brother and you think, man, is, is she an axe murderer or something? You know, and he says, and it gets to the seventh brother and he dies and they all go to heaven. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, you got it all wrong. Because in heaven, nobody is married or given in marriage. Marriage is an ultimate. That's what Jesus is saying. Something bigger at work. Something to which marriage points to, all working to point to the marriage feast of the Lamb. So marriage is penultimate, not ultimate. It points to something else. And if we don't get that right, then we make it really difficult for singles to be single. And to understand the goodness and the blessing of singleness. Marriage is not ultimate. 
God is ultimate. Now, as far as we can tell from the, from the Bible, Paul was definitely single at the time he's writing. Probably John the Baptist was, or I feel really sorry for his wife who had to eat honey and locusts. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jeremiah, Anna, who lived in the temple, Simeon, who was there as well, all single. Then there were women who were widowed or left alone because relationships didn't work out. Tamar and Naomi and Queen Vashti in the Old Testament. We know that Isaac and Moses were both elderly or older when they got married. We have no idea about Daniel or Nehemiah or Mark. Ultimately, the biggest and greatest statement on the goodness of singleness is that Jesus was single. Jesus himself was single. If you're here this morning and you're struggling as a single, there's no greater statement of the worth and the dignity and the value and the goodness of singleness than the example of Jesus Christ himself. Now, it's easy to say, oh, that's because he was God. Yes, but we mustn't underestimate his humanity either. Think about Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself has suffered when tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. And Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet remained without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Sam Albury in his book says this, it's brilliant. Jesus willingly became human for us. He he willingly became a male. And he was a sexual human being just as we are, but he lived a celibate lifestyle. He never married, he never entered into a romantic relationship, he never had sex. Jesus was not calling others to a standard that he was not willing to embrace himself. He is the example of a perfect man. He is the humanity all of us are called to be, but which none of us are. And he is the most complete and full human person who ever lived. So his not being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment and sexual experience is is not intrinsic to being a full human being. And the moment we say otherwise, the moment that we claim a life of singleness is dehumanizing, we are implying that Jesus himself is only subhuman. So when Paul writes to the widows and the unmarried in verse 8, he's writing to singles who are single by choice or by circumstance. He's saying, right now, it's good. It's a good thing. It's a God thing. And it's a good thing that you're single. It's not deficient in any way. It's not inadequate in any way. It's not dangerous in any way. God has not overlooked you in his plan. He's not misplaced you in his plan. He's not forgotten about you in his plan. He is good. And it's good that you're single. Because God is sovereign and his design is loving and he's working out his plan right now for you. And this is his gift to you. In fact, in verse 17, 
Paul tells us, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. He says, in the season that you're in right now, relax. God's put you there, so live it and enjoy it. Singleness is good because it's rooted in the sovereignty of a God who does place people in appropriate situations for the best possible reasons, his reasons. Singleness is good because it's steeped in the love of a God who uses even the most difficult situations of life for the greatest possible benefit of his people. Singleness is good because it's sustained by the wisdom of a God whose timing is perfect and whose guidance is sure. Singleness is good. We've got to understand that. Secondly, singleness is a gift. Singleness is a gift. Look with me again at verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. What does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean I wish everybody was a male from Tarsus called Paul. The world would be a really boring place. So he can't mean that. So he must mean something else. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. One of one kind, one of another. But everybody has got a gift. And what's the gift? It's either singleness or it's being married. Both are gifts. And he says, well, in one sense, it would be really, it would be great if everybody, if every believer was, was single. Because it comes with certain benefits and advantages that we'll get onto in a minute that, that are good and healthy and helpful and advantageous and provides opportunities that married people don't have. But that's not how God has designed it. He's decided to give some this gift and some that gift. It's not God's purpose for everybody to remain single. Each has his or her own gift, but both gifts are good and both gifts are from God. Now, I know if you're single, you're probably chuckling away going, oh, I hope it's a gift that comes with a receipt so I can exchange it or refund it at some point. You know, we think like that because we think, well, it's like, like some awful gift you get from a distant relative at Christmas and you think, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to give this to the charity shop. God's gifts are not like that. Luke 11, Jesus says, doesn't he, if you, when he's talking about prayer and the Holy Spirit, he says, you know, if, have earthly fathers, you don't give your, your son or daughter a snake when they ask for an egg, and you don't give them this, a fish, and, well, you don't give them this if they ask for a fish. You, you're good to them. And how much more is your heavenly father knows how to give good gifts to his children? And then uh, in James 1, you know, every good and perfect gift comes down from God above. He's not into giving duff gifts. His budget isn't limited. He doesn't need to send a refund because it's his perfect good gift to us. So what do we mean by the gift of singleness? Now, given the prevailing negative views that Christians sometimes have about singleness, some people have taken the gift of singleness to mean some unusual, some supernatural or special capacity or ability that God gives to someone to enable them to remain single in a way that the rest of us just couldn't manage. So some have taken it like God, God makes you an avenger. He gives you superhuman superpowers so that you can go and say, I am Captain Single. And my superpower is 
I have no desire for marriage whatsoever and no desire for sexual relationships of any type. And on Valentine's Day, I laugh in the face of Valentine's Day because my heart is only full of love for the Lord and the lost. That's not what Paul is saying. If, because if Paul is saying that, if you need a superpower to cope with being single, then it must be tragic. And he's just told us it's good. So it can't mean that. So what does it mean? Well, I think Vaughan Roberts from Oxford helps us get at this when he says, when Paul speaks of singleness as a gift, he isn't speaking of a particular ability that some people have to be contentedly single. Rather, he's speaking of the state of being single. And as long as you have it, it's a gift from God, just as marriage will be a gift if you ever receive it. And we should receive our situation in life, whether in singleness or in marriage, as God's gift of grace to us. And then Christopher Ash, another English pastor, says in response to the question, well, how do you know if you've got the gift of singleness? He says this, I know which gift I have by answering a simple test. If I'm married, I have the gift of marriage. If I'm not married, I have the gift of singleness. So this morning, whatever situation you find yourself in as a single, whether by choice or by circumstance, and whether you be in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 60s, God has not left you out of his gift giving. He has dispensed his gifts, and the current situation in which you find yourself is his good gift to you whether you be married or single. Now, let me just address this as well. If you are single and you desire to be married and you think, well, I, I really wish I had the gift of singleness, like that Captain Single superpower, and you feel sometimes guilty that you feel that way, that you want to be married, you should not feel guilty. Let me tell you, you should not feel guilty or rebellious if you desire marriage provided you don't begrudge God for the gift that he's currently given to you. And so while it's good to remain single, I would encourage you, it's still, it's still good to desire marriage and to pray for it, and as, uh, as situations become appropriate to pursue it, don't feel bad. But don't begrudge God of the gift that he's currently given to you. God is a good and heaven loving Heavenly Father. He loves to give good gifts to his children. To some, he gives the gift of marriage. To some, he gives the gift of singleness. And all of those gifts are different to some degree. Some, he gives a short season of singleness and a long period of marriage. To some, he gives a long period of singleness and a short season of marriage. To some, he gives them single, married, single. At different times. But in all of those things, in all of those different ways that God distributes his gifts, no one is missing out. That's what Paul is saying here. Everyone has his own gift. We all taste something of the goodness of God in the season of life that he has put us in. And we all have the ability to use the gift that God has given to us for the fruitfulness of the gospel and our own lives and the church. And that leads us on to the third thing that Paul says to us. Singleness is good. Singleness is a gift. And singleness is for God. Think about what the way that Paul uses the word single in the, uh, sorry, the, word, the way that he uses the word gift in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's mostly in, in chapters 12 to 14. 
when he's speaking about spiritual gifts. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 12, to each, again, to each person is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Each person is given the charismata, a grace gift for the common good. So each person is given a gift or gifts from God by the Spirit for the good of the whole church. That's how Paul uses the word gift in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's, his, that's the primary way he uses it. And so all gifts are given by God and given ultimately for the common good, for the edification of the entire church. So Tim Keller in his chapter on singleness in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which again is an excellent book, says in his writings, Paul always uses the word gift to mean an ability that God gives to build others up. Paul is not speaking then of some kind of elusive, stress-free state of singleness. The giftness of being single lies in the freedom it gives Paul to concentrate on ministry in a way that married men could not. And that's his point of verses 32 to 35. A single person has the ability to focus in a unique way in serving God and serving the church and the advance of the mission of the gospel and the cause of Jesus Christ in the world. A unique way. That's it. That's why it's a gift. It's a unique way that God has bestowed upon you in all of his goodness so that you can serve him and the local church and the advance of the mission of the gospel and the cause of Christ in the world. Now, so often singles hear that and they go, oh, because they just think married people here, you have no life and can babysit for me. Now, I'm not discouraging babysitting. We've used single people in our house. But the opportunities that Paul is talking about here are far, 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 far wider and more strategic than just babysitting for married people so that they can have a life. Look at what he says in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man, the single man, is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. Then in verse 35, undivided devotion to the Lord. So if you are here this morning and you are single, God says to you, his good gift to you is an advantage and an opportunity right now because you are unencumbered by the concerns and certain responsibilities that come through being married. You're freer to serve God and devote yourself with undivided, undistracted attention to the mission of the gospel and the life of the local church. So the temptation can be to focus on what you don't have. Paul says, no, focus on what you do have. The season of life that God has given you that affords you opportunities and advantages that you can do stuff for God that married people can't. It's not God has made you single. Listen, God has not made you single so you can binge watch Netflix or wallow in self-pity in chocolate or just selfishly devote yourself to the kingdom of me. 
Advance your career, do travel, do whatever you want, whenever you want. Get up at one in the morning and go to bed at four in the afternoon, you know, one in the afternoon and four in the morning and just do whatever you want, whenever you want. No, God has given singleness for God. He's given you more time, more energy, more disposable income and resources to give and serve and take risks for the kingdom of God than I can have. And that married people can have. And so he says, serve God with an undivided, undistracted, reckless abandon. Take risks for God. Do something. So this, often people ask the question, well, why am I single? And there's two ways you can ask, ask that. You can ask the question, well, why am I single? What's wrong with me? Is it my hair? Is it my dress? Is it my job? Is it my breath? Or you can say, why am I single? What what does God have for me? How can I best serve him right now? And Paul would say, be about the business of God's business in the midst of your singleness in a way that you might not be able to if you were to get married. That will hinder you. So seize the day, carpe diem, and give your life away. Be kingdom orientated for God's glory. Singleness is good. It's a gift and it's for God. But it's also hard. And I want to address that now as well. Singleness is hard. Now, Paul doesn't address this particular issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So this is, this is pastoral wisdom, I hope, an application to all of us. Not from the passage, but from God's wisdom and principles throughout the scriptures. Okay, so you will not find chapter and verse in 1 Corinthians 7 of what I'm about to say, but this is, I think, I hope, helpful pastoral application and counsel for all of us. As I've already said, Christians in the church, even our church, can enormously undervalue biblical singleness. Or, unfortunately, we hold an erroneous view that hopefully is now corrected. But the other danger that we can have, especially as married people, is to think that singleness just must be the complete, wow, wish I was single, footloose and fancy free as I remember it. It was a lot cheaper back then and it was a lot more fun than married people seem to have. Yeah, we can think through rose colored spectacles. Oh, yeah. Why are they complaining? Singleness is great. No, singleness is hard. Marriage and singleness, both God's gifts to his people, but we live in a fallen world where these gifts come with their own unique challenges, where neither is easy. It's not singleness is easy and married life is hard. Nobody, I'm not saying that. Neither am I saying, oh, marriage is easy and singleness is hard. No, both are not easy. Both can be painful. Each has its ups and downs. The trouble with us as human beings is we compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage... Or the other way around, the downs of marriage with the ups of singles, and it's dis- it provides a distorted view. Both are hard. Both can be painful. Both have their ups and downs. But when you add in the nuance of singleness, that it's different being single at 16 to 46 to 60, you realize that singleness is hard. And when God saw Adam in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I will make him a helper suitable for him. 
to God, didn't he? He took Adam and he from Adam formed Eve as his companion in and put them in the context of marriage for relationship and intimacy and procreation and life together. And so while the New Testament is very, very positive about singleness, the Bible as a whole does describe marriage as being the norm. Okay, that God's loving gift to humanity and uh, it's the chief primary context in which human desire for intimacy and relationship is met. That is, you can't, you can still say singleness is good and that marriage is the norm. They don't contradict one another. And marriage is the norm does not say quickly get out of singleness. No, we've already seen it's good. It's a gift. It's for God. But holding these two things in tension means that as married people, we have got to be especially aware and sensitive to the difficulties that the singles in our church face, especially when it comes to loneliness. And feeling like one is the loneliest number that you will ever meet. We've got to be particularly sensitive to the difficulties that marry, uh, that single people face. Sam Albury again describes it like this. I thought this was insightful. He says, there are the everyday things. When you have to fill in a form and tick a box marked single. When we have to pay for a single room supplement for a holiday. When we're faced with a two for one supermarket offer that we'll know we'll just end up throwing away. When we steal ourselves to enter a party alone. When we need someone to hold the other piece of flat pack furniture that we're building. When we come home to an empty house and there's no one to tell about the highs and lows of our day. At these times and at many others, being single can feel like the raw end of the deal. Now, none of these particular examples feel like a big deal on their own. But life is often the sum of trivial things. And the small details eventually add up. And can have a large and cumulative effect. Sometimes it is in the small everyday things rather than the dramatic moments of life that can be most painful. It's the little daily reminders that we're doing on our own what feels like we should be doing with others. At times these are easy to brush aside and so we can just get on with things but at other times it can feel overwhelming. He's a single guy. We've got to be aware of the challenges of singleness. Now Psalm 68 provides God's wonderful remedy for such daily and commun- uh, cumulative is that the word? growing sense of overwhelming pain. Psalm 68 verse 6 says this, God settles the solitary in a home. Or as the NIV puts it more famously, God sets the lonely into families. I've read that and I thought, oh, that's lovely. Isn't God good that he puts the singles in families? And actually it should be deeply challenging because the families that he puts the singles into are the Smith family. And your family. Our family is a church. You know, it's common Bible speak. We talk about this. Oh, the church is a family. We're brothers and sisters together in the Lord. God is our father. That's lovely. But it can be hollow and meaningless if we're not careful. It just becomes empty PR. 
In Matthew 12, Jesus, again, is in a situation he finds himself. And he says this, while he was speaking to the people, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his, towards his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He reconstitutes family away from the nuclear biological family, though still important, to help Christians to see we have a truer family than just those that we share DNA with. It's those who are purchased by the blood of Jesus and born again by the Spirit of God. So marriage, we have to be thinking about singles. How can we offer them the companionship and the relationship and the fellowship and the intimacy that they were made for? But they don't experience because they're not married right now. That I've been challenged about this as I've read this and the gospel comes with a house key by Rosaria Butterfield. That at the boundary of our nuclear and biological families needs to be much more flexible and porous. And I've been talking about this. How are we going to do that? We, have, we haven't done a very good job of that. And so how are we going to change? How is our family going to be more flexible and more porous? How can we open up our home and our life to embrace the singles into the everyday and the mundane? So that they've got someone to share the two for one offer with. So that they can see our family life and be part of it. Warts and all, sin and everything. So that we can carry their burdens. Burden shared is a burden halved. And this is more than just inviting them around for the odd meal or come and watch the rugby, as good as that might be. But how can they become part of our family? Meals, errands, downtime, holidays, living with us. Now, all families will be open, able to open up their homes to different degrees. It's not the same for everybody. This is not like, okay, now everybody has to live, invite a single to live with you this afternoon. All right. It's going to be different for everybody at different times. And different seasons of family life mean that uh, it may not allow you to do the things that you would love to do. It may restrict you at the moment. But I'm pretty sure that for Claire and me, we could be doing more than we're doing right now. We might be able to do more in the future. We might be able to do less. But right now, I think we could probably do a bit more. So let's look for ways in which we can do more. You know, think about Easter that's coming. It's great. Who, who has already thought, oh, the Easter holidays are coming. It'd be great to spend some quality time with my family. Well, my only qualifier would be don't forget your truest family. Let's include, look to ways in which we can include singles in our lives. And if I can just say one final thing to singles before I wrap up, and I've been going a bit longer. The deepest aches and the yearnings for intimacy that you might feel right now as a single person, they won't be ultimately met if you find a soulmate and get married. They'll only be met in Jesus. Stacy Rioch wrote this on a Desiring God blog not too long ago. Single lady. The longing to be fully known and fully loved is only fulfilled through a real relationship with Christ. No person can love us better than him. He knows every secret sin, every glaring fault. And if we are hidden in him by faith, we are covered by his precious blood. We're forgiven, 
free and loved. Treasure this truth and trust that he can and will be enough for you. In whatever season of waiting God might have you in, choose to bloom where you're planted. Embrace the life that God has called you to, whether single or married, and trust that both callings are precious gifts of God, both with painful and overwhelming hardships. Happiness is not found through finding a soulmate, but through finding satisfaction in a loving saviour who has called you his own and who has made you a beloved son or daughter of the king. You know, there are some people here who are single right now who will get married one day. And there are some who might remain single throughout their lives. God is good in both situations. But the most glorious truth is that no one will be single forever. Okay? No one will be single forever. Human marriage reflects the marriage that God wants to enjoy with his people forever. The New Testament culminates in speaking of Jesus as the bridegroom who is one day going to return to take his bride, his church, to be with him in the new creation forever. And he tells us that one day all the pain that we've experienced, whether as a single or as a married, and all the difficulties that we've faced, he'll wipe away our tears. And a great shout will be heard. This is what Revelation 19 says, and I'll finish here. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Let's anticipate that day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you would help us as individuals to walk in faith and humility and purity in marriage and outside of marriage. We pray that you would convict us of sin if we have run afoul of these things and have doubted your promises. And we pray that you would help us not just as individuals, whether married or single, but as an entire church that we would be a place for singles and a place for families, but families as you describe them, that we would be a place of the right sort of inclusion. We pray that we would, you would help us grow together as married couples and as children and as those who are divorced and as single people and as students that we may follow you in whatever stage you have given to us for this season of our lives. And whatever gifts you've given to us, we would use for them for the common good, that we may build up the body of Christ and bring you glory. So take our lives and use them as, we, as you see fit, we pray.